We, uh, we're going to start today where any good sermon would start. Math. Yeah. I'm up here. We got to talk numbers or finances or money or math. We're going to start with math. Um, as any of you good math students know, when you have something and you add more to it, you yield more of that something, right? That's basic mathematics. If you have four apples, you add five apples to that, you get nine apples, which is more. If you like apples, that's good news for you. Money, maybe. Money is a fun one to add to. We all want more money. If we had $40 to begin with and we add more money, $60 to it, we get $100. This is more. It's better, usually. We like to add. We like to have more. But what we're going to see today is when it comes to Christ, Christ does not live by the same rules. The same laws of basic math do not apply to Christ. We're going to see Paul's going to teach through through Galatians 5 that if you add anything to Christ, so if you start with Christ and add anything to him, instead of it being more and bigger and better, it's actually quite the opposite, right? If you add anything to Christ... You actually lose Christ completely. You don't still get a little part of him. It's not just watered down. It's like, yeah, a little bit. You lose Christ completely when you add anything to Christ. And that's going to be our topic today. As we move into Galatians 5, we're coming out of Galatians 4. Paul ended that chapter by explaining that the Galatians were not children of Hagar, who was the slave woman, right? Instead, they were sons and daughters of Sarah, who were born again free. Not free by anything they did, but free by the promise of God, which is much better. And so we move into this section, and how are we to understand this freedom that he's talking about? Specifically, that we're freed to be able to live freely in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul wants so desperately for the people. This is what your pastors want so desperately for you. Paul is specifically going to address circumcision because that was a big stumbling block to the hearers of this original letter. We're not going to focus as much on that. Instead, we're going to kind of, I'm going to kind of piggyback on Grant's sermons from the past couple of months. He did a faithful, very faithful job of preaching about discontentment in December. If contentment is an issue, I advise go back and listen to those. It'll comfort, it'll help protect you from your discontentment. We're going to expound a little bit on insecurity. Galatians took us there a couple weeks ago. Again, he did a faithful job preaching on just insecurity, bringing some things to the surface. Again, as a way to protect, not to shame, not to put down, but a good shepherd protects the flock. And Jesus, the good shepherd, he wants that for us. And so we're not going to dig too far into circumcision, but today we're going to look more about discontentment, insecurity, and kind of how we actually add things to Christ by living that way. All right, we're not going to hit all the topics. I hope and I pray that the Spirit kind of convicts and protects and brings things to the surface, maybe things that we are adding to Christ that's diminishing His power in our lives. 
But church, we're able to live freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those sound like three different things, but, but we know those are all joined and one in Christ. All right, so an important warning for us today. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. If you add anything to Christ, you lose true gospel freedom. This is what he's talking about. Some of us are living this way today. And so I want God's word to help us here. All right, let's, let's ask him for help. Lord, we, we acknowledge a need for something more than ourselves. Lord, whether we're conscious of it tonight, today or not, we've come here and to some degree we're submitting ourselves to your word. Lord, even me preaching your word today, I submit myself under the authority of your word. We ask that you would speak to your people today. Your heart is a heart that cares and wants to love and protect. But Lord, may we be open to hearing from you today. Humble us. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start in Galatians 5, verse 1. If you need a Bible, we have some extras on the back table by the offering box. Galatians 5, verse 1. Let's follow along with me. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. All right, this is a big verse. Some say this is kind of the main point of the entire letter, even. It concludes the thoughts before it. It also leads into what's after it. Christ has set us free through his life, death, and resurrection. And now, because of that, and only that, now we have access to live freely. All right, and there's a lot of things going on just in this one verse. We're just going to touch on a couple. And first, I want to get out in front of this word freedom, because I think this can be kind of a stumbling block to us today, culturally. Some of our worldly associations with that word can confuse us, okay? In some ways, it's almost like, I think, how the word uh, blessing is starting to be used or has been used for a few years. Everyone's just throwing around the word blessing, and it's a blessing, and blessings. I think most of those are not even much biblically sound anymore. They're similar to how thoughts and prayers is kind of thrown out. It's like our our thoughts and prayers are with you. People who don't know God are saying some of these things. That doesn't diminish the true meaning, but it's also it kind of waters it down. And so even us, we kind of hear these things and we see it used differently. And, and to us now, it starts watering down some of these deep, rich biblical concepts, okay? So similarly with the word freedom, especially again, because this country was founded on some human freedom principles that, that are good. This isn't saying those are bad. It's just putting them in the right place. I think sometimes we so poorly let the fleshly idea of freedom blend in with the biblical depth of freedom. And so it causes a lot of people to lessen this category or or to kind of merge the two. Right? We've talked in the past, some conservative news sources and outlets want to purposely blend this together. They kind of want to get us riled up. They want us to think that Christianity and Republican and conservative means all the same thing. But we remember that any connection with human fleshly freedom on earth, diminishes this true freedom that Christ is talking about, right? Here's the difference. 
True freedom in Christ does not need to live in a country with a free democracy structure. Right? That's a huge difference. And that's good news. True freedom in Christ can be born into the most oppressive human condition on earth and through the power of the Spirit, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, true freedom can be experienced, right? And celebrated. Okay? So again, we can be thankful for the freedoms we have in this country. This is not saying they are wrong or bad. But it's always going to be helpful and appropriate to try to separate the two, to see one is limited, temporary, and one is eternally significant. All right? Especially, it's an election year, everybody, right? So be, be, be on guard. This is the, hopefully the loving warning. Be, be on guard. Because some of these sources, they're, they're based on money and power, right? That's what's driving some of the political messaging. Money and power. And any talk of freedom that flows from money and power certainly is not what this gospel freedom is talking about, right? Quite the opposite, okay? Remember, if you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. So we need to be careful. Let's keep things separated appropriately when it comes to this word of freedom, okay? Another thing at work here is the word again in verse 1. It says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this is a tough one. I think some of us may kind of check out when we hear sermons with this. We might think it only applies to other people. But this acknowledges that at one point, we all submitted to a yoke of slavery. At one point, we were lost. There was a time in our lives where we didn't know God. I think a lot of us would agree with that, academically at least. We would would agree in our minds. But I think the way that we live sometimes actually shows a different picture in this category. I think sometimes the way some of us live is that we kind of just almost subconsciously think back and reflect. It's like, no, I was kind of always a good kid. I never really struggled with that much. I kind of always just knew God. Some of us grew up in a religious way that rightly taught that Christ was the only way, right? That's, that's good teaching. We were able to maybe memorize and recite whatever mom or dad taught us. But the issue is that type of thing, that knowledge, whatever we could recite and say that was often celebrated to the point that that taught us and led us to just kind of keep going that way. And what it led us to was, hey, it's actually not safe to admit sin. I've got to be the good kid. And so it wasn't a culture that was open for wrestling with sin. We admitted a need for a Savior academically. We memorized enough to say that we needed that but we weren't actually feeling that reality. We weren't feeling the sin and the saving grace from God for it. And so the sin can kind of continue to just coexist sometimes. Instead of living freely, it actually hindered our freedom. We were adding something to Christ we didn't really even know we were adding because, again, we knew the right things to say. And so I think some of you, real time, are still submitting to a yoke of slavery. That's what makes this kind of a hard word. But again, I could talk about circumcision. We could keep it way out there and not really applicable. I'd rather, I'd rather try to affect our lives here and what God's word says about us today. 
So I think when we live this way, we're adding things to Christ, and most of it's legalistic stuff. It's, it's expectations for ourselves to live perfectly, maybe, because we were surrounded by a wrong understanding of freedom, where it wasn't safe to confess sin or weakness. And we've kind of grown up in that. Now we can sometimes put those same impossible expectations on others. We put them on ourselves first. It's the subconscious, like, hey, I'm, I'm perfect. I need to be perfect because that's how I get praise and approval. But really, that's enslavement to yourself. So the thing you've added in that scenario, the thing you've added to Christ is perfection. And this is why life is often miserable for you. But the idea instead, this idea is that we were oppressed and worn down because we didn't yet have Christ in our lives. But now, with Christ in our lives, we don't have to live that way in bondage anymore. That's the message here. We don't have to add a bunch of other things to Christ. Instead, we submit fully to him and know that as long as we add nothing to him, we walk in freedom. This is, this is his call to us. This is the original call. In church, Christ is a good and gentle leader. He wants to help free us from this way of living. We remember Christ tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he invites us, and this is to the self-righteous. This is those who are living, kind of adding things to Christ. He says, come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some of you are longing for rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, the picture here is relief for us. Christ bears the weight on our behalf. We just get to come along for the ride, essentially. And that doesn't mean an easy life, free of challenges, hardships, trials. That's not what that means, no. But when those things come up, as long as we don't add things to Christ and stay with him, he leads us right through that stuff. Yea, though, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? For he is with us. The good shepherd protects his sheep. Paul so desperately wants this for the Galatians. And so now he moves into these verses to kind of give examples. Like, here's, here's what genuine, real believers look like, and here's what fake believers look like. All right? He's trying to protect. So we move into verse 2. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Up to this point in the letter, Paul's been touching on this point of contention and confusion, but here he directly addresses the issue that circumcision has caused among the Galatian people. His heart is to protect them from adding anything to Christ. So this idea was, was circulating. It was becoming popular 
among this group that you had to be circumcised to truly be saved. From Acts 15.1, just one example of this, says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It was a firm, direct rule. And those who can't rely on grace alone, humbling themselves, acknowledging their need for a Savior, they're always going to have to add something to Christ. That's what we want you to see here. And it's usually going to be something that can be done right in front of your eyes, something you can produce yourself. That's easy to see, easy to control. So circumcision is representing that very thing. They could physically do something. They could control an outcome of something. And it was connected to the law, the Old Covenant, so it, it under, they didn't just come up, come up with this idea out of nowhere. They, there was some connection there, so it kind of makes sense, but they didn't humble themselves enough to truly work through it the right way. We've dug into that a lot in the past. We don't have time to dig into all that today, but if you want to talk more about circumcision and the Old Covenant, happy to do that afterward. But Paul instead says, no, circumcision, no circumcision, it doesn't really matter ultimately. It doesn't really count for any significant eternal value. In fact, he's advised some people to do it, some not to do it. It's always just dependent on the setting, but never as a means to salvation, right? Never that big of a deal. He puts it in its rightful spot. And we also, in this section that we just read here, verses 2 through 6, it kind of uh, almost opens the door to a little brain teaser of sorts, right? And in verses 2 and 4, I think, He's kind of saying, hey, if you accept the lie that comes with circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. Another way of saying that is Christ will have no power. It seems kind of, kind of weird or wrong. Like we're in church. We can't say Christ has no power. It feels, so it's kind of a weird conundrum maybe. So we know that's not true. We know Christ has all the power. So what's Paul getting at? He's saying, again, if you add anything to Christ, then you lose Christ. You lose his power working within you. You lose this gospel freedom. If you had no money, you completely ran out, you needed to eat, and I said, here, here's some money. We're going to pretend like this is a lot of money. Um, Here, take this money. It's real. Go get food after the service is over. Go get lunch for yourself. You received that so thankfully. You had nothing. Thank you for that gift. Thanks for that sacrifice. So you go, you order your food, you eat, you enjoy, it's time to pay, and you have no money. You have no money because you didn't come get the money and take it with you. Right? Does the money still have the same power? Right, it's not the, not the money issue. If you go out into the world without the power source, the power source has no effect for your life. It's not the problem about the money, though. It's the fool who neglected to use the money, right? This is what he's saying. Christ obviously has all the power, but when we live without him, do not be surprised when your life is powerless. That's the message here. 
This is why Paul says, for those who accept this lie about circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to them. And then further, not only that, those who do accept this lie, you're now obligated to keep the entire law perfectly. They're adding to Christ, which means they're losing Christ, and so now they're going to have to do everything in their own power. And this is how some of us are living today. It's the struggle. It's why you're miserable a lot of times. But he's saying here, you've got to do it all then if you add anything to Christ. You're now fully dependent on yourselves to save yourselves. That's an impossible task. He wants to protect the Galatians from yourselves, from themselves. Your pastors want to protect yourselves from yourselves. We all should want to protect each other from ourselves. So it's an impossible equation. No one can keep the whole law perfectly, and we don't have to. That's good news, church. We know that's good news. This burden is way too heavy for us. So those in Christ, we acknowledge we have sin. We acknowledge a need for a Savior. We can actually freely celebrate that we're not perfect. That's what freedom looks and feels like in Christ. We can celebrate that through grace alone, nothing that we brought to the table, but everything that He did bring to the table through the Spirit, by faith alone in that reality, then we can eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness that the text talks of in verse 5. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is not a bondage equation, church. We eagerly await, and we get to experience some of it now. This is what freedom feels like. This is the evidence of true believers. In verse 5, when it says hope there, this, this isn't a hope of like sitting back, fingers crossed, hoping that something happens, right? Like maybe it will, maybe it won't. I hope. hope here is a confident assurance that it's going to happen. It's a confident assurance that God is who he says that he is. True faith alone is a confident assurance that frees us to walk in freedom. This is why we don't let cares of the world really affect us. This is why we can actually be content and secure no matter what the circumstances, because we stay so close to the one who is in control. In Christ alone. So circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is faith. And then living that way, a life of faith alone in Christ, produces love. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruits of living this way. Love, contentment, security in Christ, knowing that you're a son or daughter of the Father. There's such security in that. Only if we truly believe that he is who he says he is, though. When we live this way, we'll be secure and content. We won't have to grab onto other things or try to control everything around us. We won't have to be jealous of others. We won't have to treat people in ways that's condemning. We'll be freed up. And what flows out of that? Love. 
things of love just naturally will flow from that. You don't have to try to get love, attain love. When you live this way, love will just come naturally. It'll be the default of the way that you act and treat people. This is the example of what true believers look like, church. So we see examples here that Paul gave us of false belief, true belief. Now he moves into verse 7 through 12 to expose teachers who are false and true. And again, we see a protective leader here, a leader, a shepherd of people who wants to protect so badly and so passionately that he's going to expose false teaching. And then he's going to shed light on himself being a true faithful teacher. If you remember back from Galatians 1 at the beginning of this, I'm sure you all remember, but just in case you don't, from Galatians 1, 6 and 7, at the beginning of this letter, Paul wrote, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he, he touched on that in the intro. Now he's, he's coming back to, to go a little deeper. So we pick up in Galatians 5, verse 7. It says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He says you were running well. He goes back to the call. You were called by God, by grace alone, not adding anything to him. It appeared that you had faith alone in Christ alone, but something happened. Noise started creeping in. Started adding things to Christ. Maybe people who are very persuasive and likable. Jesus described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside. They knew how to talk. They knew the verses to recite. These were religious people. Noise crept in, started adding things to Christ. And he says, but this is not from him who calls you. You need to be able to see a difference here. If you have eyes to see truly who he is, you'll be able to do this. But watch out is the warning. It's not from him who calls you. This is not of Christ. No, instead, this is of the devil, who's the father of lies. Lies are creeping in and spreading. It says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's talking about how just a little piece of misinformation can spread so quickly. We talked maybe a year or so ago about words how powerful words can be. This is why gossip is so dangerous. Words can be so dangerous. Sometimes the insecure and discontent can be destructive with their words, which stirs up division, strife, just general discomfort. 
with a group of people. But they do this because they're just trying to get people on their side. They're not secure, they're not content, and they're fighting. And so they find yes men to complain to and get people on their side. Insecure are adding things to Christ. They're adding expectations, maybe adding things about other people that they think they need in order to be happy. And ultimately, it's just they just never get there. They're never ultimately happy. And we talked about earlier, if maybe you grew up this way, adding personal expectations to Christ first spreads quickly inside of ourselves, right? We kind of create these expectations for ourselves. We're adding this category of perfection on ourselves first. It can fester for years, but then gradually we start spreading that onto others. But church, again, a reminder, it can only spread to others if others allow it to continue to spread, right? We're all responsible here. It can only spread through others who aren't mature enough or brave enough to be faithful to the truth. If someone comes and gossips or slanders someone else to you, do you follow along? Do you join in? Do you get emotionally charged up? Do you add fuel to the fire? Whatever they complain about, you just give it merit. You don't even know what the other side is. Do you just like to get charged up and fired up because it feels good? Or maybe differently and equally as bad, do you kind of just say nothing? Kind of just nod a lot. Oh, hmm. Both of these are wrong because by saying nothing, the person gossiping thinks you're on their side then immediately. If you're a yes man, a people pleaser, you're likely part of the problem and not the solution. Paul, remember, he's writing this to warn. Watch out here. Watch out. This is what false teachers look like. Those who spread lies or gossip and slander, you're false teachers in a way. We think of false teachers maybe, again, kind of disconnect from that topic as people who just preach opposite of God or anti-God. Usually it's the opposite. Usually it's those who preach something similar to God that's kind of close. But it's adding something to Christ, typically, or diminishing who he really is. Paul does not care about the approval of man. We should not much care about the approval of man or being popular. The question here, when it comes to false teachers and true teachers, do we want to be popular or do we want to be faithful? It's a sobering, it's a sobering question. I do, again, do not speak down at you with that question. I feel that question. Paul clearly doesn't care about popularity. Jesus clearly doesn't care about popularity. I hope the leaders of our church do not care about popularity and just wanting to be liked, right? That's, that's something we have to work through, deal with. I hope current leaders of this church and future leaders of this church care about being faithful because that's what's going to yield a healthy body of believers. Part of the call is to protect the flock. It's the biblical call of elders to protect the flock. 
Not one we create on our own. Not one that's, that's enjoyable, to be honest. There have been and will be again times where we have to confront people who stir up strife and division. This is real life. And biblically, we are to keep them away from you all for all of your good. This is God's design for his church. We are to protect. That's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to protect the Galatians. It's for everyone's good. It's sad. It's difficult. This is, this is real life. I can't explain that enough. We've had this conversation. Those, those, some of those people who are no longer a part of this congregation because of some of these problems, I have to run into them in public sometimes. That's real life. It's not enjoyable because they see me as, as a bad person, a mean person. That's not a fun thing. This is what a real biblical church would look like, though. But it's not popular. But do we want to be popular, or do we want to be faithful? That's a question we all have to deal with. The other good news about false teachers is we know that they'll have to deal with every false word that was taught or spread. The day will come when every false teacher will be judged for every false word. We rest in that. Even if it doesn't feel like it in the immediate moment when this stuff is happening, we rest in the sovereignty of God and we know that things will get dealt with best. And so Paul here, he's confident in the power of the Lord to preserve and prove itself among the Galatian believers. Those who are truly saved, will eventually see through all of these types of lies. It might be confusing, it might be a little enticing, it might sound good, but even when all these things come up, these challenges come up, he knows God's people will prove to be God's people because they will seek him alone to work through the stuff. That's what the church is supposed to be. We need one another to be Highlighting this truth. Christ alone. Don't add anything to it. Watch out for this. This is a communal call. This is good news. This is good news. God's people will prove to be God's people by seeking Him through all the challenges and trials. If we're a people who is just so foundationally built on God's Word, then we have a good chance of doing this because we're not going to point each other to comfort to get through these things. We're going to go back to the Word, back to the Word. Even if we don't understand it cleanly or perfectly right away, we're going to go back to the Word. That's what a true teacher of one another would look like. And Paul even is being challenged a bit here. He's trying to clear his name from being a false teacher. If you look back in verse 11, he's pointing to the fact that he He doesn't actually place any real significant value on circumcision at all, like we talked about a little earlier. In fact, he was greatly opposed to thinking of circumcision as a means of salvation. There's nothing here to gain God's approval, he's saying. But if he would have preached circumcision, he would have been safe with these people. He wouldn't have had much opposition. He wouldn't have really been persecuted. That's that's what he's explaining here in this verse. 
But no, he's pointing to the fact that he still does get persecuted. Why? Because he's preaching a gospel free from the law. Free from circumcision. And so his proof that he actually was not preaching circumcision was to point to the persecution that still existed in his life. He was saying, yeah, it's okay sometimes, but it was definitely not preaching about circumcision with any gospel-saving merit. And so he wants to expose this false idea of circumcision being necessary for salvation because he's a loving shepherd. He wants them to know that they cannot add anything to Christ. And so he ends this little section here in verse 12 in a way that might seem a bit harsh at first, but he's saying he wishes those who are leading people astray and causing them to stumble would emasculate themselves. Seems harsh. And without getting too graphic, we don't have time to dig into it, thankfully. I don't really want to get into it. That's, a, that's what we call a, win, a win-win. Um, instead of just performing a small procedure of circumcision on the male reproductive parts, this is talking about possibly removing all of the male reproductive parts completely. That's what he's getting at here. Okay? And there is some cultural significance that when this was done to men they would no longer have authority or respect to lead or teach in certain ways. And so that's kind of the point here. The point's not the the physical part of it directly, but we also know just humanly this would severely damage somebody, severely cause harm and injure somebody. And so these are the things we need to take away. This is why he's saying that. Remember, a good shepherd will protect the flock. This is coming out of the heart. If, If harm comes to the flock, right? You picture a flock of sheep. If a wolf starts, starts coming near a sheep, a good shepherd will eliminate the wolf, right? That's how you protect the flock. And so Paul, I think, is a pastoral shepherd here. I think he, he's definitely, he's not talking about revenge or just violence out of anger. I think he's just saying he wishes those people who are spreading those things would disappear from harming the Galatian people, Right? That's the heart here. He just wants their power to be lessened, so their influence is lessened. He cares about the people. So do we want to be popular, or do we want to be faithful? And in those first 12 verses, he's emphasizing this idea of freedom, what it might look like when we add nothing to Christ. Then he goes on to tell us how to keep that freedom, right? The message of the first 12 verses, like, hey, here's what freedom is. Don't lose it. Protect this freedom. Don't add anything to Christ. Don't be easily swayed by false teachers or false whisperers, false friends. Now these last three verses that we're going to highlight today, he's kind of going to go from, hey, don't lose this freedom, to don't abuse this freedom. Don't lose Christ as the only thing, and now don't abuse Christ by the way that you live. Don't claim to be in Christ and live in a way that doesn't actually represent him rightly. So we look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Saying, remember the call. Remember we deserve eternal separation from God and eternal damnation. Remember that he called you out of that, brothers and sisters. 
Remember verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Now he's saying we need to act like it. Or else it's evidence that we're probably adding something to Christ and thereby losing him altogether. So we read on in 13, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Freedom in Christ does not mean it's best that we do whatever we want or whatever feels good in the moment. That's not what freedom in Christ means. But we're allowed to. We're allowed to. He points to that reality here. You have choices to make. You can choose to sin. And we do choose to sin. But no, when you do, you're abusing the freedom you have in Christ. When we make selfish choices, when we add anything to Christ, anything that we think can make us feel better in the moment, those things serve our flesh. They're selfishly motivated. So similar to those who are commanding circumcision to be saved, we're settling then for something that we can control or see right in front of us. But sanctification, growth, to be more and more like Christ is such that when we don't add anything to Christ, when we enjoy freedom in Him, then our desire for the flesh fades away more and more as we grow more and more content in Him. And this isn't saying that living freely in Christ means that we never sin. We know that's not true. It's just when we're free in Christ and then when we do sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us, doesn't let us stay there. He helps lead us to repentance. And then we freely confess our sins. And we turn from them. There's a, there's a maturation process that comes. Conviction of sin and confession of sin is evidence that we're living with this freedom. And we don't want to abuse that, church. So we're going to get to fruits of the Spirit in the next couple of weeks. What flows from living a true life of freedom is all the fruits of the Spirit. Peace, contentment, security, and more. But again, actions that are loving toward others. Because we don't have to hold so tightly to control everything and everybody, right? The whole law is fulfilled when love is on display. Why? Because Jesus came in perfect love to fulfill the law. It's through His power. So love that flows from us is completely through Him alone. His power alone. The false teachers were saying, no, there's a different way to fulfill the law. There's a different way to salvation by adding something to Christ. But Jesus and Paul are telling it differently. And this is true freedom, church. So we wrap up with, again, kind of a warning from Paul. For those who continue to to be discontent in life, for those who blame others for their own lack of joy and contentment, I want it to be revealed and exposed that you are adding something to Christ. And that's why His power in your life is lacking. 
Remember the money thing. It's, it's not because of him. It's not because he's withholding something from you. It's because of you. You're withholding something from him. If you're adding something to him, you need to let go. For those who continue to be insecure and who use it as a crutch, or who maybe celebrate being insecure, think that other people should just deal with it, because that's just the way that you are, right? You're adding things to Christ. You're surrounding yourselves with yes-men. You're believing whispers of false teachers or foolish friends who are letting you just continue to think that way. We need to be true teachers, church. This ends with a warning. Don't be surprised if these patterns in your lives continue. Because when this is your approach, it says watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Being consumed by one another is not a happy ending, right? That's not a positive freedom. That's oppression. That's angst. Those who are living that way, you're adding things to Christ. So don't abuse the freedom. Don't abuse Christ. Remember, he wants you to stop fighting. Remember, this is, this is the heart of Christ. He doesn't want you to be wrestling. He doesn't want you to have turmoil. He wants you to stop fighting, stop wrestling, stop yelling, stop getting angry, stop adding all sorts of things that you can control to his name because you won't be representing him rightly. You'll be abusing him by abusing others. So we remember the call. I don't want to end it bad, right? This, it ends bad. We're going to come back. Remember the call, though. What if? What if instead we could just let go and experience the freedom that he has for us? We remember, Colin, you can go ahead and put this up. We're just going to leave this up for a little while. Remember the call. He doesn't want us fighting and wrestling and yelling, being anxious. Come to me, all who are living this way, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. This church, this is where true freedom is found. Amen? All right, let's pray.